Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Christian. Hey, this is Amanda. And this is the AERA 641 podcast. And we're back. We are back. I know we had a very, very short podcast last week, but today we have a really, uh, a really good one. Actually, it's one of your colleagues, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this week, so I want to start first by saying that this um, podcast episode or an interview was actually recorded back in May kind of just a couple months into quarantine. And so it it may seem a little off, you know, some of the things that we talk about, but I just wanted to let you guys know it was recorded a while back. Christian and I, the podcast kind of took a hiatus in the summer as we, as we each grappled with what was happening and and had to step up in other areas of our lives. Um, but, but again, we're back, and this week's episode is a new episode with Dr. Bernard Means from Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Means is the founder and director of Virtual Curation Lab, which is one of my favorite places to hang out on campus. He's anthropologist, archaeologist, and one of the foremost experts in 3D archaeology. That sounds like it's going to be a really interesting conversation. All right, everybody, enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I am in the studio today with Dr. Bernard Means. Dr. Means is an assistant professor of anthropology in the School of World Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, so a very good friend and colleague of mine. Dr. Means is also the director and founder of the Virtual Curation Lab. And he's one of the leading experts in 3D archaeology, especially related to educational and public outreach. Hey, Bernard, how are you? Hi, Amanda. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing well, I think. Um, <laughs> I have to ask myself a few times a day to, to really think about how I am. But I, I have to figure out what day it is half the time. So. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What month it is. Um, but you know, I get the newspaper partly to keep track of the days. <laughs> yeah, and I try to avoid the newspaper to forget the days, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing all right, doing all right. Uh, it's nice that I'm a 3D digital archaeologist since I can't be with my lab, actually. Uh, but yeah. I can still be with my stuff. That's true. So to speak. That's true. But I, I think I recall a couple of months ago seeing something on social media about you lugging some giant 3D printers out of the lab, but had to take those home, huh? I brought home uh, one 3D printer and four 3D scanners. That's awesome. So that I had access to the stuff. And there has been some really exciting products that I have seen come out of that. <laughs> we'll get into a little bit about what you do so folks can appreciate those, sure, those objects sure. in a little bit. Tell us, one, I think, what is the virtual curation laboratory at VCU? Uh, so we actually started back in uh, 2011 as part of a Department of Defense project related to archaeology. And our initial goal was to 3D scan artifacts from military bases hmm. um, and then use that information to develop protocols to train potentially soldiers for 3D scanning and the uh, person that I did it with knew that I worked with students quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so we actually uh, made it a student-focused project from the beginning. Students um, scanned artifacts. They developed training materials themselves. They taught each other how to do it. So it was a really great sort of real-life experience. 
And then we began to really rapidly expand our sort of mission um, and the people we sort of interact with. Uh, working, we, we work with a lot of different museums, so students get a lot of experience uh, going to museums, going to other places as well, working with people at different sort of levels and this for the professional field. And so we mostly, these days, we used to go out and seek sort of people to mm-hmm. provide us some material scanning. We don't really do that anymore. People come to us and we've been doing a lot of 3D scanning and a lot of, and a lot of 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for different museums and also for people that do different kind of education, either in a sort of K through 12 setting or uh, sort of non-traditional settings like in, in museums. Mm-hmm. So I've I've been to your lab. I wish I could uh, be descriptive enough to to have our listeners know what it looks like. It is an amazing place. So when you walk in, you think that you almost feel like you're you're in the archives of a museum. There's skulls everywhere, there's pottery, there's giant mastodon teeth and giant ground sloth parts <laughs> um, and the world's oldest ham. Really interesting stuff. And then you get a little closer and you realize, wait, those aren't the actual artifacts. Those are plastic. They're 3D printed artifacts. But what's so amazing is not only do your students do 3D scanning and printing, but they also do painting. Like they paint them to look very realistic. Yeah, our goal for that, and this is kind of rule of thumb for museums at least, is to have something, if you're standing about three feet away from it, it'll look real. But if you get close up, you'll know it's a replica. We also create some of the material to be used for people that are more object-oriented in in how they learn, like different audiences, like the blind and visually impaired. And one of the things that I actually learned, and I didn't know this uh, when we sort of started on that, is that color is important to visually impaired people as well. Mm -hmm. They don't want to just feel the object, but some of them still have some color sense. Uh, So the color is important for a number of different reasons. It's also great for using it in a classroom setting. Right. Uh, Students don't know that the object isn't real. Isn't the real object until they pick it up. Yeah. Uh, and then they'll notice a difference. And they can touch something and experience something um, in a context that would not be there otherwise because we can't have thousands of small children <laughs> touching actual artifacts, right? And the accessibility issue, and even accessibility in terms of who gets to go to a museum. On a field exactly. Trip. Who, can, um, who, who can afford that, right? You know, and who can have transportation. And so this creates a whole new world. I can literally fill a suitcase with thousands of artifacts from all over the world, and it only weighs 20 pounds, and take it to a, a biggest fourth grade assembly and pass stuff around. And sometimes people drop stuff and break it. And sometimes fingers are sticky. Sometimes they're really sticky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and it, it's less important. In fact, it doesn't, doesn't really bother me. I figure there people are getting something out of it. It's also great for um, uh, museums who want to have a, of course, less less of an issue now, a yeah. tactile experience uh, for yeah. people. But you could still use like the, you know, because I've been thinking about this a lot is, is we create stuff so people can touch it. And of course, with COVID, we don't really want people touching stuff. The advantage to 3D printed artifacts is you can, you can sort of treat them as kind of disposable in a sense. 
So you could actually give the objects to the kids and not only could they interact with it in a classroom or educational setting, but then they can keep it. So, um, so you don't have to worry about it coming back to you and dealing with those sort of issues. Yeah, Um, that's awesome. And what you do is a perfect example of experiential ed, right? Of connecting real content-based tools, skills, and knowledge to real-world applications. In the field of anthropology and, and archaeology, um, the students that, that intern in your lab um, or volunteer in your lab, I mean, do they all want to be archaeologists? Are they all on? I, I was an Indiana Jones kid. I was determined. So, I mean, is that the plan, or do you have students in, from various disciplines? When we started out, it was mostly archaeology, but now we've become a sort of a place that anthropologists, even if they're not going to go into archaeology, um, like to get some experience in the lab to get that hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even if they're not going to go into archaeology, one of the career paths open to them, at least until recently, <laughs> was the museum profession. So a lot of them like to get that sort of experience. They can also interact with objects that even if they're going to go into, say, uh, studying human origins, they can interact with replicas um, mm-hmm. of skulls that they might later on get to work with. So that's been good. Uh, we've been increasingly getting students from VCU history mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. interning in the laboratory. And then we have a number of, uh, we usually have one or two art students uh, yeah. that'll come to the lab every, every semester. In fact, I'm working with an art student right now this summer on a summer research, a funded summer research project. Uh, She's going to create a comic book based around some of the things that we've been 3D scanning. That's awesome. And she's part of the, our undergraduate research opportunities program, right? Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Something that struck me when you were talking about that is a conversation you and I had a couple months ago, maybe again, the time thing, but (laughs) a couple months ago about dissemination and translation of findings, right? How do, how do we do science speak for the everyday citizen, right? And I know that even if you have students that want to be in a lab all the time, right? Or on a dig site, or there's a value in those students being able to talk about what they do and talk about objects and artifacts and tell the narrative in a yeah, way. Yeah, I think uh, um, uh, one of the things I'm really concerned with, and of course a lot of us are, is uh, with uh, scientific illiteracy mm-hmm. uh, amongst the general public. And so we do a lot of public events throughout the year. So we have open houses all the time. Um, if there's a festival that we can get to, we'll go to that. The museum is having sort of an open house and, and they're interested. We'll, we'll bring our stuff and I have the students come as well. In fact, it's a great advantage to me. Uh, one time last year, we had three different events on the same weekend, and yeah. I couldn't be at but one of them. Uh, and so students actually ran the other two events. And I heard back really positive things uh, from people. And so, and again, it's not as much pressure for the students is because they're taking replicas with them. And so they don't have to worry about, you know, so much the care of the object. Although I do stress, because we do get Uh, I should sort of back up a little bit. We do get real objects in the lab. People will bring us stuff or we'll go to museums. And I try to, whenever I can, take students with me when I go on the more sort of local uh, research trips. Or if I have funding, sometimes I take them 
to, yeah. up to Pennsylvania or far western Virginia. But they can they can do these events and and it's it's sort of low pressure and so so it's that's a really sort of great experience for them. Well, and they're gaining an incredible skill, like you said, that that is of concern right now to the scientific community, right? Scientific literacy, it's it's a concern, and having that skill, you know, sort of in their back pocket, is really going to increase their value in the field. I think so. There's a few things I want to ask you, but <laughs> right now, I would love to know, and I'm sure our listeners maybe too, what is, I want to say the best object that you've had the opportunity to scan, but that's not the right word because you have scanned some crazy things. So maybe what's the most interesting object that you have scanned and printed? It's really hard for me to pick out stuff. Uh, because it does sort of change uh, from from time to time because there's always something new. And I'll go to places and I'll scan stuff that they want to have scanned or or that I want to scan. And then I'll say, what do you have that sort of cool? So, but of things that I've scanned uh, um, at the New York State Museum, I scanned some dried mammoth flesh. It looks like beef jerky. Ew. Um, you can, uh, and you can download and print that if you have a printer. I've 3D scanned uh, at, at the request of a museum in California. I 3D scanned some giant ground sloth poop. I have that, right? Yes. Didn't I get a 3D replica of that for Christmas? You did. I, I made an ornament out of it. That's right. Uh, that's super exciting. <laughs> and uh, you can uh, you can 3D print that as well. And that's courtesy of the Smithsonian. I've uh, uh, 3D scanned a, a mastodon tooth. Mastodons were uh, extinct relatives of elephants that belonged to... Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I've scanned giant ground sloth bones and mastodon bones that belong to Thomas Jefferson. Tell us about the world's oldest ham. It's one of my favorites. I'm working on, I'm making my way to the world's oldest ham. So <laughs> I was doing a, uh, a, a workshop for educators from museums. Uh -huh. And one of them came up to me and said, um, we'd love to have you come to our museum. It's in uh, Smithfield, Virginia. Um, and we have the world's oldest ham. And it was, uh, it was about this time of a semester and I needed a break from grading. And I thought, you know what? I want to go see the world's oldest ham. So I drove the two hours to the world's oldest ham. And uh, I was kind of expecting a cheesy museum, to be honest. Uh, but it's a spectacular museum. They do a lot in their space. They have state-of-the-art exhibits. They have a ham cam. Oh. You can, you can see the ham 24 hours a day, <laughs> seven days a week. Um, which is which is great for them now, right? Because uh, the, of course they're not open. So I scanned the ham, and then last summer I actually went and scanned it again. I had a better scanner with me, and that was kind of funny because we actually did that scan on ham cam. Mm -hmm. um, and ham so people, cam. did you people, say ham cam? Ham, H A M, ham, ham cam, and people were actually emailing them while I was scanning and say, "What's wrong with the ham? Is it okay?" You oh, because because so, you were scanning it, it wasn't. I was scanning on the it on ham. ham. I was live on ham cam. People bring offerings of mustard and cans of pineapple to the, to ham. the ham. Yeah. Oh, like if you were going to cook it. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Uh, you would not want to eat this ham. No. Uh, they also so the ham is from 1902. Okay. And uh, it, it's on Twitter, uh, so uh, just look up oldest ham, or it might be world's oldest ham. Hashtag world's oldest ham. I think. Mm -hmm. Um. And it's very active on Twitter. 
Nice. Um, they have, uh, they also have a, so the ham's from 1902. Yeah. Um, and they have a peanut from 1890 and we also scanned that. Oh yeah. So there is no doubt that um, when we think about why experiential ed and community engaged teaching and learning works, one of the things that often comes up repeatedly, right, is student engagement. Students are engaged and they're able to connect and, and recognize connections um, between what they're studying and what they're doing. And oh my gosh, what better way to do that than through the world's oldest ham? Well, and they get it. They get to interact with uh, museum professionals, uh, either right. at the museum itself or they'll come to our lab, and they get to see why it's important. And yeah. you know, we made a full-size replica of the world's oldest ham, and that was great for them because they can take that to schools. Yeah. They can't do that with the real thing. Well, like um, we said earlier, that's a skill that not every student coming out of an anthropology or archaeology program is going to have. No. And so that's a really valuable skill. And so that brings me, we're not quite out of time, but we're getting there. So it brings me to um, the question of K-12 schools. I know you and I have done some work together with um, K-12 schools and outreach. Tell us a little bit about what you've done in the, in the local area with K-12 schools. So I'm going to uh, focus on one teacher, um, uh, Kim McQuillan from... Uh, Stonewall Jackson Middle School. Um, I was actually doing an event at a, a national teachers conference, the National Council for Social Studies, and she saw me there and saw what I did. And she, she thought this would be perfect for teaching her kids. And her view, and I hadn't thought about it this, my, this way myself, was that replicas are primary documents, oh. right? So we think about like the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution as being a document that are used by history teacher. She uses the replicas. I worked with her a little bit. She actually got a grant uh, to create her own history tactile lab. So wow. she has a 3D printer in her classroom and she prints stuff. Mostly stuff that we've 3D scanned from different places. But she, there's, uh, there's literally tens of thousands of things that you so, can download for free. So all of the, basically it's like taking the virtual curation lab at VCU and the work like that you're doing with undergraduate and graduate students um, through internships and courses. And she's done that for middle school. Yeah, she has them uh, uh, create exhibits. Um, I also work with a teacher in Arizona who's just uh, actually just fin finishing his PhD on education. Mm -hmm. um, and he's actually created a museum oh. for his students. And they have to actually develop little exhibits. And some of them have actually presented those exhibits at like science fairs and stuff. That's amazing. Um, and so they have something physical and they, they have to research the object yeah. and make a you know, sort of connection to it. So. Yeah. Critical thinking 101, right? That brings us now to a lot of this work is hands-on. <laughs> and, you've, you know, there's been little tidbits of like, well, we can't do that right now. Well, we can't do that throughout the interview. But I know that you have been doing um, some pretty cool stuff with so when you scan i guess i should back up when you 3d scan something it goes into a database so that you can share files and other people if you have a 3d printer like you said people can print the artifact of what's been digitally scanned but you've also been doing something super cool for families and kids tell us about that so i was uh, um kind of struggling with how i was going to sort of interact with 
people. And also I had uh, almost 20 interns that suddenly I needed to come up with projects for them to do. Uh, one of the projects uh, was creating coloring pages. And so I have a, one student in particular has been focusing on creating coloring pages. Um, and she uses the 3D model that you can see online. And so that's one of the advantages of 3D. So you don't have to have a 3D printer. You can actually look at it online and, online and you can manipulate it in three dimensions. You can actually do a lot of analysis mm -hmm. with just the 3D models. Uh, but you could, she used it to make coloring pages and people can sort of color them. Um, I've also been using a, a 3D program to make patterns, uh, slices of the objects. And you can actually cut those patterns out on cardboard. So, so those are nice little patterns that people can use to, to make a 3D replica without having a 3D printer. So for sure, when we post this episode to our Facebook group page, I am going to make sure there's the link to the virtual curation lab because I know you have a blog that you, that you post information and uh, we'll make sure that there's links to those 3D, 3D databases, you know, 3D archives and um, how folks can do the cardboard cutouts and the coloring pages. And also Bernard, if, um, I'm sure there's going to be some listeners that are interested in what you're doing and especially maybe thinking about how this program or the lab could be adapted to meet the needs of other universities or K-12 schools. I'll share your email and would it be okay if folks reach out? Yeah, that's perfectly fine. And I've actually helped a couple of uh, museums establish 3D printing and 3D scanning labs as well. So I have some experience. Awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today and taking time out. Um, it's always awesome when we get to chat. Thank you, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. Have a good day. You too.